Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is Brum Richards, who served the majority of his career in uh, 148 Mike Taylor Commando Ford Observation Battery Royal Artillery, and was a guest on the podcast recently when we discussed his career. On this episode, we'll be discussing 148's role during Operation Corporate better known as the Falklands War. We're not going to cover the lead-up to the war, as this was discussed in some detail in our earlier podcast about the Battle for Mount Longdon with three-para veteran Jimmy Morham. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet, it'd be as well worth tracking back and checking it out, as this is one of the best first-person accounts of that action we've heard. In addition, Falklands Commando by Hugh McManus is an excellent account of a 148 NGO party during the war and is well worth the read. So it's great to have you on the podcast again, Brum. So what was your role in the battery at the time, and were you on any sort of standby or notice to move? Well, I'll just uh, cover it by saying the battery strength, as at 2nd April 82, was 53 all ranks. It was broken down into five NGS teams of five men each, one SAC team, which is Support and Arms Coordination Centre, which is six guys, two NGLOs, and a headquarters of three. A rear party of 21, uh, of which eight were attached ranks like Clark's, Catering Corps, Remy, Q-Stores, and so on. My role as a BSM, well, there's no real job description for it. Many BSMs posted in had no previous experience of NGS and were therefore at a disadvantage, but some fitted in very quickly in the life. I believe I'm the only one to have gone from gunner to the WO2 without ever leaving the battery, and I was BSM for the last seven years of my time there. Is that quite unusual to have a, a BSM slot for that length of time? Because normally a BSM tour is about two years. Yeah, well, they, they just, whenever they got my confidentials, I'd say, I don't want to leave. And they'd say, all right. <laughs> and, that, 
But I, I, I just, I was such a, I was trained in so many things, and I ran all the NGA courses and so on. So it's just, I don't know. You're right. They, they changed the career structure with the gunnery career course and all these things. Yeah, and yeah. You, you couldn't stay. You couldn't. You couldn't be a wo two without being a staff sergeant and things like that. The whole thing changed later on. But I just snuck under the uh, the wire. I think on deployment or exercises, uh, we were dispersed around a lot. So a lot of batteries in camp. Like at 53, when you go away, there's five men go away and they come back with long hair and or attitude and whatever. So the BSM has to say, look, stand still, get your hair cut, shut up, have three days off and then come back as a soldier again. <laughs> but I've been a soldier, I know you've been a soldier, but this is a barrack soldier and it's a bit different. A bit like rent, rent and NGST. Our main deployment support structure was with three commander brigade, three teams, the SAS one team, SBS one team. So we, when, that was our general on the books deployment where we could do anywhere, go anywhere, and do anything we were required to do. My primary role was as a BSM um, was, like anybody, discipline and training in camp, get the blokes to stand in line, all facing the same way, and bang your feet when they had to. But it was difficult with the guys we had because they were all really top-class guys, and they didn't respond much to shouting or whatever. I'll, I'll give you an example. A lot of people I've spoken to who have left the battery or knew the battery said, one thing about the battery was, you tell a bloke to do something once and that's it, you forget it, he's done it. You haven't got mm. chasing him and looking and checking and all that. It just gets done. We had a BC from 473 Battery on a previous podcast and he turned around and he said, it's been great being a BC of a battery like 473 or in your case 148 as a BSM, he said, but the better trained and better motivated the yeah. guys, the, the harder they are to manage. As I was BSM for seven years, um, I had my own NGFO team for exercises. So I worked with the Dutch Marines a lot because they didn't have their own FO parties with the paras who didn't have guns, sort of less seventh were there, but the paras would be operating on their own. So they'd have a team along, and it was normally me that went. And I also ran the 12-week NGA courses. So by running those courses, I picked up a lot myself. <laughs> 12 courses of uh, 13 courses of 12-week long. I was also the ABSA instructor, and I'd qualified over the years as an FAC, RTFOO, Naval Gunfire Forward Observer, Naval Gunfire Liaison Officer, uh, and, and as for instance, in 1976, I conducted more live firings than all the six officers combined. I also organized and controlled all the daily physical training when in camp. So I was in everybody's face all the time, but not shouting in the face. I was a nice chap, really. Ask any of them. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Yeah. Uh, stand by. We were always ready to go anywhere and do anything because we did many times in my 19 years because we were constantly training. We are flexible in our training, and it was always geared to the unexpected, but based on a simple plan of train hard and realistically and fight easier. So it was all to do with strength, stamina, flexibility, and determination to succeed, which was the key moral that I try to instill in people. Kevin, I often talk about uh, the three sort of core attributes of a soldier, dismounted soldier, that shoot, move, and communicate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Those yeah. three core skills. Now, I think that broadly ties in what you're, you're saying there. Yeah. Where was you then when the battery got warned off for the Falklands? I was in my bed. <laughs> <laughs> we just we just um, we just come back from Norway as doing a seven week deployment, and on the sixteenth of March, and uh, we'd all come back and had a good trip. We had a fantastic exercise. So on the seventeenth of March, we we all got back. As I said, on the seventeenth of March, the BBC showed a video of Davidoff raising the Argy flag in South Georgia. So we were not to know that was a trigger for this, what was happening next. Everything went quiet. Friday, April 2nd, around 3 o'clock, 
had a phone call from the duty guy, said, get into camp at the rush, that's all. So that I was on the list of phone calls. So we all got a phone call. Um, we came in. I was due to be posted to Germany as a smith of Ragtier that day. Got on a message to You got a close escape there then, mate. Well, I ended up going there, but that's where I was going to go because I had this <laughs> little argument with the BC. Anyway, by 10, 10.30, I was rigged up in a dry suit along with Colonel Eve, Ray Longs, and Larry Wilcox and Matt Lowe. And we were going to be parachuted into the sea somewhere off Gibraltar to meet up with the RN task group who'd just been doing a wee exercise in med. They were deployed. A task group was deployed by Maggie, and they said, right, go. They just completed the exercise called Spring Train. At 12 o'clock, we learned the Argers had landed on the Falklands. We watched the video of the attack on the Falklands, those mm. the Amtraks coming ashore and the governor saying, I'm not going to surrender to the bloody Argers. And by 12.45, the battery were sat on their Bergens and ready to go in all respects, less ammo. Now it was just sit and wait for their orders. I went across to SBS to talk to my mate over there and asked what they were doing and he told me about the, what they were doing. I don't know if I can mention it now, but anyway, um, they, they were all, they'd all gone up to Faz Lane and six SBS had gone on board the Conqueror. She'd submerged off Faz Lane and surfaced in the South Georgia. So you didn't need any pre-deployment training because you just done Norway. Yeah. Well, we, as I said, we were always, we were always, it's gone up already. we were always trained for any time. Yeah. We, we did Norway every year. We, yeah. we did two Norways normally, a white and a black Norway. By that, I mean white was snow and black was mosquitoes. It was either raining or mosquitoes or snowing. So you, you mentioned the SBS earlier in, in the conversation there. Were you, did you have quite close ties with them at the time? Oh, yeah, we were, we were hand in glove with the SBS all the time. I'd known most blokes. And, um, I told you, I said the other day that uh, you know we knew the, one of the officers in SBS who became the Liberal Democrat leader. Paddy Ashton. No, Paddy Ashton. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was with him in Borneo, and, and we just knew it because we worked together, and they were teaching our guys um, rebreather training because we had di- ten divers. And the battery had ten divers, ten free fallers, seven MSIs. We had, you know, the quality of men was phenomenal. And we worked with, with SBS on boat drills, canoes, and we often shared aircraft for water jumps at Studland, and we'd do a week's parachuting in in the med with them each year, just jumping, you know, for a week. You just honing your skills, doing the grouping and all this, jumping after Geminis, cutting them free, all the things that you do in that way. So we were always training. We were never sat on our backsides doing nothing. Uh, as we were Arctic trained, the conditions were familiar to us. So we'd, we'd done done a lot of stuff that you, you just do every day, basically. And also Portland, down the road from us, was the naval training base, FOST, Flag Officer Sea Training. And ships, yeah. ships from all around the world came there to do like a five, six, eight, ten-week course um, and in Navy. And our ships, the Navy, the British ships, had to do a, a commissioning week. They'd do a, a long course, and then they'd be um, tested on all, all aspects. A team would go on board from FOST of every a chief petty officer or a senior rate, of every di- discipline on the ship, and just test the ship, just like a admin in the army, you know, an admin support to come in. And if I didn't pass, they were in trouble. If they passed, they were commissioned, off they went. So we were almost, um, not daily, but every week we had stuff to work with at Portland. There's always something. So, so technically you would say not only were you tactically due to your deployments to Norway, but technically in your gunnery, your, your naval gunnery, you're on top of the, oh, yeah, your yeah. game as well. Yeah, well, we, had, we used to have to also have helicopter pilots, Navy helicopter pilots come to pool to do a course to learn the procedures for firing guns. They, did, they mm. didn't do it. And then they'd be taken up to Lark Hill and fire the 
to support batteries, guns, just to see the effect and that sort of stuff. Sometimes they go up in a chopper, they get hold of their own chopper, but it's hard re- reeling the Navy in. No, you can't go this, fly down this route. And they just want to fly all over the bloody... Yeah, uh, it was it was good, and, and we were constantly training all the time. So looking at equipment-wise then, obviously you, you're... <clears throat> Arctic warfare specialists. And when you look at back at the Falklands, quite a bit of the equipment that the army deployed with at the time wasn't very good clothing-wise, yeah. etc. But do you think you were probably better equipped than most units when you went down there due to your role? No, well, we, we had the standard equipment. SPS, of course, had a better range because they, were, they weren't actually termed special forces at that point. They didn't have the title, although everybody knew they were. But we were used to borrow some of their weapons sometimes. They had armor lights when they went in, and our, our teams, when they were inserted behind enemy lines, they took armor lights, which is a smaller weapon. The idea is not to shoot people if you're inserting covertly. You don't want to go, bang, bang, I'm over here. It's <laughs> a last resort, isn't it? You want to get in there without anybody seeing you. So an armor light, because it's light, we used to use them in the jungle as well, and they are pretty light, and they're not that robust. Well, the AR-14 wasn't, anyway. They had nod and heat-sensitive devices, and our divers had been trained, I'll say, with rebreather techniques. But funnily enough, on Saturday the 3rd of April, the day after the call-out, suddenly a couple of lorries appeared in camp with much of the stuff we'd been asking for in peacetime we couldn't get. And then it was all released because it was obviously held in you know, held in abeyance. You can't have the, yeah. you can't have this till as a war. Uh, excuse me, there's probably going to be a war now. Come here, so we got... We got um, armor lights, three, four, four radios, nods, Gemini smaller engines for the boats. Oh, bloody NBC suits! I had three NBC suits. I'd had one for every year in my career. You know, <laughs> but suddenly they said, "Have as many as you want." But have they got NBC? Well, we don't know. But you take as many of these as you want. So the war stock, which is hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody pulls a pin in, all drops out the back of a lorry, yeah. and off you go. So we got all that stuff. Quite handy, actually. What sort of comms would a, uh, a naval gunfire control party carry? <laughs> they would tailor to the situation. Uh, for instance, HF is the main means to a ship, because that's what all the ship uses. Uh, uh, the, uh, sorry, HF, HF. And so was Morse. If you get good comms in Morse, you've got a voice. But sometimes you just can't manage the voice because a lot of, lot of fac- facility- things are wrong with it. Um, the ships had U.S., which is sometimes used as well, carried for exfiltration to get a helicopter exfil. So you go in with a HF set, sometimes two HF sets, if it's five of you or four of you. They take two HF sets. One was the complete set, one was just a bare set as a backup in case it one broke. If you jump in, you always want to take a spare set because you don't know what's going to happen when you parachute. I've had a, a, an aircraft just shatter on, uh, and a radio shatter on me when I was jumping once. And it, So what do you do? You don't just hold the bits up and shout. You're just you're in trouble. <laughs> and the UHF was used for the exfiltration of helicopters. If it was NGS and then the guns were landing afterwards, you'd have to take VHF. Therefore, you'd have to take VHF for both gunner and infantry. So in the end, you could end up with a typical full load of two UHF 320s, 1.5 to 30 megs, using Morse code, 18 to 20 words a minute uh, for voice. UHF 344. 225 to 400 megs aircraft, so almost line of sight. So, you know, mm-hmm. UHF is, is difficult. But if it's, you're talking an aircraft, they tend to be up in the air, don't they? So you, yeah. you've got a better chance yeah, of getting obstructed, hopefully. Most That's of the them. hope. <laughs> uh, the 350, which is 36 to 50, 56 megs, arty. Um, the terrain interferes a lot with that. So if it's thick woods, hills, it, it can affect the thing. And likewise, the 351, 
30 to 76 megs infantry terrain again. So a full load would be two 320s, 344, 350, 351. So Plus all the batteries. Uh, well, the batteries, luckily, they're all the same it, with, mm. with the Klansman range. When you were down south, were comms generally quite good or were they quite difficult? They were sometimes difficult. I mean, there's a lot of hills down there, a lot of rain, so everything gets everything gets wet and uh, it is it is it is difficult. Um, one time, I was on a ship and uh, brigade headquarters couldn't talk to one of the brigade commanders, one of the uh, battalion commanders, but I, 165 miles away, could talk to them. So I was relaying 165 miles away to the east, relaying their messages to these poor buggers that were trying to get each other about four miles apart. So that's just yeah. the idiosyncrasies of of the HF and BHF. And of course, uh, for listeners who might not know, this sort of the embryonic days of satellite communications. Because oh, yeah. I, re- I remember reading somewhere that uh, the SAS yeah. managed to get a hold of some satcoms off Delta Force, I think it was. Yeah. But for everybody else, it would be just be as you said, HF would be the sort of the main. Well, well this little dip there. On, I went on board Fearless for the briefing for the landings. And uh, I was in, in the, as a shake on, stuck on the side uh, behind the funnels, like, which the battery used. And uh, John Roycroft and George Booth, two Geordies in there, and I was in there talking to them. This, this SAS bloke burst in and he looked at George, who he knew, and Johnny said, he pointed to me, he said, Is he all right? And I said, Yeah, yeah, he's a BSM. All right. This bloke opened, opened up this little, like a fiberglass briefcase almost, pulled this bloody thing out and was talking direct to Northwood. And I, mm. I looked and I said to George, what's he said talking to Northwood, mate? That's direct. The ships couldn't talk to Northwood. And he was yeah. in the inside of Shake-On talking to bloody Northwood. So, bro, can you describe the journey south? Give us an idea of the briefings, the training, the atmosphere on board the ship as you, as you were sailing down and the news was coming in. There's been several documentaries recently which you'd think that the day after the um, Argy's attack, we'd all landed on the beaches and I mean, did it, but it's 8,000 miles away. We had no extra training except marking up maps. We just returned from the usual deployment in Norway, as I said, and we issued the set of maps of South Georgia, uh, mainly hand-drawn. I thought, where's South Georgia? What's that got to do with it? I knew where the Falklands were because I'd attended a briefing a couple of years previously, Naval Party 8901. I was one of the few people who knew what was happening down there at that time because they were hiding in the hills, etc. Most people thought the Falklands were up near Scotland somewhere. We were given these uh, almost hand-drawn. They were drawn by the British Antarctic Survey people who would draw a, an inlet with quite detail. It wasn't linked up to the next inlet, which somebody else had drawn in detail. It was like a bit of, <laughs> bit of blank. It was all black and white hand-drawn maps. So we had to play alone with them. And I thought, what's all this about? And then the next lot we had was... 29 Falkland Island maps, which just looked like a one-inch, well, they were one-inch Alden survey maps, really, but without any grid lines. We reprinted them. So the issue, they said, right, it's like there's five sets issued to us or something. So we had to make up a new set of, for the printers. So we had a rope to do our own. So we sent a guy downtown and brought up all the fine marker pens in, in pool <laughs> and the surrounding area. But, you know, a small task force of two carriers and their escorts left UK on Monday the 5th to go south. But as it was 8,000 miles away, it would take a long time. So setting up the admin bridge was going to be an immense task. All the petrol stations, grocery stores, repair shops, pubs, you name it, got to be set up on a, a link, a line, where ships have to resupply each other. And the furthest one says it's going to get resupplied all the time, and all the others are going to resupply it. You know, just try and imagine it, past the parcel, doesn't come into it. 
because they just loaded. I remember hearing some recently that, that they just sent ships to various parts of the UK and just loaded the yeah. stores. They didn't have time to sort yeah. the stores out. And so when you when you got to Ascension, there was a bit of sorting out. But even when they got to the Falklands, they had things like a lot of the air defence kit was at the bottom of the pile, and yeah. uh, they couldn't get it quickly enough to set up in the, on the land. Well, we we uh, that was a big thing. And Maggie Thatcher give her give her due. She said, "Win the air and sea battle first, then send in the foot soldiers." I don't want any foot soldiers on the main task group. They get in the way. We've got to feed them. Imagine feeding the three three brigade, uh, three commander brigade, three battalions of marines, plus the two battalions of paras. Every day food. It's just no way. So she said, get down there the navy first. So yeah. on Wednesday the seventh of April, <coughs> I had to go to Southampton, which is only thirty five miles from Poole, as a unit rep for passage details to South jo- South on Canberra which had just been commanded as stuffed ships taken up from trade. Um, all the civvies were kicked off <laughs> and unhappily in Gibraltar, and these Marines were on board to see how many blokes I could get on a ship, which was, I don't know how many civvies you get on there, but you get twice as many squaddies on as you get on civvies. <laughs> Luckily, I knew the Royal Marine RQMS there. He said, hello, bro, I was, oh, yeah, mate. here's our list, here's our number roll. Okay, you're all sorted. We'll get you sorted out, no problems. And that was quite, quite funny. There was a Royal Corps of Transport. In those days, it was Royal Corps of Transport did all the movements. Yeah. And yeah. a major stood up in front, and we're all in this big hangar, all the unit reps. And he said, right, I am blah, 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 blah. And this lieutenant, Lancer, stood up and said, um, I'll try and imitate. Um, excuse me, but my commanding officer, who's a lieutenant in the lifeguards, is 14th in line to the French, so he should have a state cabin. <laughs> And this, this major said, I won't say what he said, but he said, go away in small jerky movements. <laughs> and this bloke sat down to much applause from all the bootnecks. <laughs> uh, as I arrived, uh, I, I, then, I then received a phone call, get back to pool immediately. I said, but, but get back immediately, you know, try to drive back to pool. I'd, I'd done the duty, given the guy the list and all that. And just as I drove into camp, Lieutenant Colonel Eve and Captain Brown had just returned by Lynx from a major briefing in Stonehouse in Plymouth. The briefing was, he took me into a room and said, right, this is, this is top, top secret, mate. M Company, 4-2 Commander, was to hide in a blacked-out gym as a commander brigade made a big thing on TV of marching out of camp because the CO said, to the South Atlantic, quick march. It was all on all Southern, <laughs> Southern TV, you name it. It was a big, Maggie was a good publicity uh, person. So they all marched out of camp. And some of the wives are going, I couldn't find my husband. They're riding in M Company, riding in the gym. It's all blacked out. <laughs> and they were to meet up, um, M Company, with 12 of us, two NGFO teams, two and five, William McCracken and Chris Brown, and Keith Eve and me as the NGLOs, at Bryce Norton at, at midnight to fly out to Ascension. Mm. So that was to go covertly to Ascension. I always remember as we went past through the gate, we went on board, in fact, with our, with our um, fighting order, and rock rifles, which you wouldn't do nowadays. <laughs> we had no ammo. We had all our bloody gear. All this gear had gone out by uh, Herc a few hours beforehand. Going to take. So, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you you were uh, employed as a naval gunfire liaison officer, yeah. and just just for people who might not be aware, can you just break that down? What what that NGLO's role was? Right. Well, I'd I'd done the NGLO's course many years ago, and um, the, the the idea is the Navy in those days. I don't know what it's like now didn't understand military, if you know what I mean. They, didn't understand. they were Navy, they're floating around, they did the stuff. 
and they didn't understand the army or the marines or whatever really so they had to have somebody on board who knew the land battle and knew what was going to happen so they were able to give him the targets and say to the ship you must engage these targets in, when they get the orders come in. The radio operators would listen for the fire mission and all that sort of stuff, and they give the directions left, right, up and down. And then you just give them, give the ship's captain all. And now that's quite a task for a W02 to go on a ship to speak to the captain who normally doesn't see anybody else, but you know, but his officers. He doesn't even live in the wardroom. He has his own day cabin, and the wardroom is invited into by the first lieutenant. So it's it's very difficult, and you have to just know the know the ground plan in detail. But the biggest thing is he has to have confidence in you that you know what you're talking about. If you are Manar yeah. and shuffle your feet, you're going to go, oh, this bloke's no good. He's going to do his own thing. So yeah. I was lucky on, on all the seven ships I was on. I had a fantastic captain. Plan was to go covertly to Ascension and meet up with ships to go south, the, the rush to take reach take South Georgia. So I'd gone from being the first one to be ready to move to the last ones to go. And I was sick as a parrot. I thought, hey, we ain't going. We're going to be laughed at. Um, anyway, we got to Bryce Norton, Friday the 9th at 23.59. We left. And I always remember going through the gate. And this um, corporal, RAF corporal, was rather round in the middle. He said, I wish I was coming with you, sir. I thought, yeah, I bet, I bet you do, mate. <laughs> we arrived the next morning. This is, this is I can distinctly remember this so after further specifically briefs on what i had to do on i was put on board hms plymouth funnily enough colonel he said to me right this is this is the plan um richards you're going on you're going back you're going to plymouth i said what i've done all this mm. way and i've got to go back to hms <laughs> plymouth you dummy that ship is just <laughs> coming over the horizon which we would have jumped had we jumped on the friday we would have been on the ships anyway um so he said, you'll go on there regarding NGS. A Wessex helicopter picked me up and deposited me on the deck. Uh, I was taken to the CPO's mess and waited. The Jossman met me and asked who, why, what, wherefore, and a few more expletives. What was I doing here? He showed me a bunk and said, sort your things out, mate. And then the tannoy boomed like they do on the ship. I don't know if you've done any stuff on ships. You hear, do you hear there? Will WO2 Richards report to the captain's cabin at the rush? I thought, oh, God, I've made it. I've done something wrong. I knew the naval protocol. I thought, I've done something wrong. I've got off the wrong foot. I've walked down the wrong passes or something. <laughs> and uh, this bloke, Captain David Pentreath, called me into his cab. He said, oh, what shall I call you? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, uh, what, what rank? I didn't have, wasn't shown any rank. Um, I said, well, I'm a, I'm a warrant officer, sir. He said, right, right. So what do the men call you? <laughs> Can't tell you that. He said, I should call you. <laughs> I should call you Mister Richards, which is the lowest rank, and Mister is a, a midshipman. I thought, okay, right. call me a midshipman. So I called. He said, you um, can you just tell me what you know? What's going on? So I give him the full brief. I said, you know, we're going to go down to uh, South Georgia. We're going to meet up with the Fort Austin, the SAS are on board, and going to meet up with the Endurance, the SBS are on board. We're going to form a group with MV Company Fort, Fort Du Commando Recce Troop. We're going to take back South Georgia from the Arges. Um, at the moment, that's all I've got for you. And as, as I finished speaking, this is ironic, the Chief Radio Supervisor, Chief Petty Officer, came in with a big signal. It was classified secret, UKI's Bravo only. So the captain said, excuse me a minute, and he started reading it. And at the end, he said, Mr. Richards, well, you just told me in this signal, in every detail, 
And that was, was a great mate after that because I told him, <laughs> I told him before. Preempted his signal. Top, all this top secret stuff. He said to me, do not tell anybody else on the ship what we're doing <laughs> because they were writing mail home and it fought us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, did you have any journalists on board as well? No, no, no. They, they were oh. they were still getting the cameras ready in in England, weren't they? And in the hotel bills and things. You know? Next day, we sailed in company with Antrim and all the NGFOs, NGOs, and Tide Spring with M Company. We had to avoid the bears coming out of West Africa, and they were chasing us in the daytime. As Russian aircraft, yeah. Russian reconnaissance aircraft. Yeah. But, I mean, the sea is a big thing, and the, the technology then in those days was still a bit of line of sight type thing. Um, although the Americans did nudge a satellite down south for us. I don't know if I should be saying all this, but, but they did. Um, so the bears were coming out of West Africa in the daytime, so we would group up tight in the day. If you're tighter, it's, it's, it's more difficult to see. You, you wouldn't believe it is. And at night time, we just put our foot down and went you know, head, head first as fast as we could south, gain up the speed. And the flashing light came into its own, didn't communicate by radio, just the old, oldest lamp flashing between ships. It was fantastic. You know, we, we just... Went on there. Friday the 16th, we met up with Fort RFA Fort Austin and the SAS and Endurance with the SBS. Plymouth took 21 SAS blokes on board. Two of them I knew very well. So that was another thing. Because I've been in the battery so long and worked with all these people, I was like almost a credibility. Oh, Brum's there. You know, oh, we know you blokes, yeah. Mm. If I'd have been a new BSM, they'd have gone, who are you? And they'd have to, you'd have to prove yourself type of thing. So I'm not bragging, but because that, that longevity, they just knew me, and that was it. So we got on, we got on to South Georgia, and we attacked it, um, as you've heard before, and we did a good job. Although the SAS had some problems, and so did the SBS. I mean, the SAS crashed two helicopters on Fortuna Glacier, and the SBS had problems with the burgy bits ripping the canoes open. They all regrouped, landed again, and the sub was spotted, and we helicopters fired missiles. And then the SAS, SPS, NGFO, and some Royal Marines landed. White flags were seen. Plymouth fired 166 salvos and Antrim 69. Job done. So that, that first part of taking the South Georgia was a good morale boost for the Brits. Oh, you're not and, kidding. Uh, Mate, you know, it, it, it sort of set the scene to the Argentinians that were being serious. But I can just pick up, Bromi, on a, a, a point you made there about the SAS on Fortuna Glacier where the two helicopters came down. I read a, a book by Rod Boswell, um, Mountain Commanders at War, which is about the MAW Carter. Yeah. He's quite, you know, he's quite frank in this book. And he reckons that the SES wouldn't take any advice from sort of Arctic warfare specialists and cracked on with this mission when a lot of people were telling them it wasn't a good idea. I mean, have you any comment on that? Exactly the same. I mean, I, I, I can only tell you what I saw. What, I was at the briefing with Captain Hamilton, who was the SES leader down there and um the sbs guy as well the sas insisted on landing on the fortune glacier fortune glacier and i got my maps out and i noticed um it was about 20 odd k's from the target gritviken then the sbs put in their bid of where they're going to land with the canoes and it was 22 kilometers south and i thought is this a bloody race or what and the, the british antarctic survey leader <clears throat> said to the sas and the sbs we can get you closer to the target because we land all the time down here with helicopters, wasp helicopter. But the SAS insisted we want to go there. Now, the biggest problem we had down there, as you may have seen a recent uh, video uh, documentary by the SAS, 
the chain of command was terrible. Yeah. The SAS worked to Maggie Thatcher, basically. The SPS worked to the Major General Royal Marines. The battery worked for the Navy, but were governed by 2-9, but we never never did anything with 2-9. The Navy was in, Admiral was in charge of us, tasking us. The Marines uh, were led by M Company, Major Nunn, and he was a mountain leader expert. The SAS weren't actually in date with their Mount Arctic training. So there was a, a conflict of interests. I'm not doing what you say because I'm doing what I want to do type of thing. And it could have caused, could have been fatal. And Maggie did say afterwards uh, that if we'd lost South Georgia, we wouldn't have gone any further. If we'd have been wiped out by the enemy. I mean, if if we were defending South Georgia, we'd still be there now defending it because yeah. the Argies were just anywhere. They didn't understand good defensive positions. Chris Brown... Well, that was the test of them, really, wasn't it, South yeah. Georgia? Yeah, well, they, they were was, just wandering around in, yeah. like, like, whatever. And ca- but if you, if, like you say, though, if you hadn't taken it, and I think there was other testers, because, I mean, they did that, when you said about the Vulcans and the uh, aircraft at Ascension Island, that was that bombing raid that they oh, did, that, wasn't that, it? That, nobody else could do that but us. Well, yeah. the RAF. But again, it was to prove that, it was that proving point again, yeah. you know. Good training, the good, good morale and whatever. I mean, that sort of... Rivalry, and that's probably the right word for it, between units out there. I mean, sometimes it's healthy, but a lot of times it can be quite unhealthy. So who was sort of doing the deconfliction between the units? Because in some respects, once you move to the Falklands from uh, South Georgia, it's a relatively small area. It's quite a small recce space. When you take into account SBS, 148, SAS, you've got the recce troops from the Paras, and the other infantry units, you've got the uh, Mountain Arctic Warfare Carder, who are acting as the Brigade Recce Force or Recce Troop for the Royal Marines. So who was deconflicting all that to make sure that it was going well and it was all coordinated? Well, nobody really. I've got, I've got maps. I'll tell you, I've got maps north of Stanley, and I've got them drawn on it. I've still got them here with me at home. I've still got drawn on it, SAS training area, SBS training area, and neither of the two shall meet. Now, that was it. They, they they dedicated their own areas. We were being hit from an FAC stuck on top of um, Mount Rosalie. And I knew it was up there because I spoke to the first lieutenant of Plymouth, who was an ex-Phantom pilot. And I said, look, sir, if you were coming in to attack this San Carlos, could you do it on your own? He said, I doubt it because they're coming in ground level, sea level, mm-hmm. and they're turning right through a gap and right again and attacking ships. And someone's got to be directing them. You know, a pilot hasn't got, he just can't do it that quick, even even though all pilots are brilliant, you know, reaction type people. And I said, I think. And these Argentinian pilots were highly skilled, but oh, yeah. because of the long flight from the mainland to the fault, yeah. they had, I think I remember reading, it was like five minutes on station to That's make right, these yeah. decisions. Well, they had roughly seven minutes loiter time. That's supposed to be that their, yeah. their limit. But they, they were coming in, some of them were crashing, hit being hit by waves, they were so low. Sometimes wow. they get a refuel in. Um, and, and, you know, it was just, it was difficult and there was a lot going on, which did conflict. And you, you sort of saw that, well, this could go pear shaped but the SES went off and did their own thing almost in, in the end. And SB were competing against them. And there were times when SB insisted on something happening because they wanted to catch up with the SES because the SES mm-hmm. have got a better chain of, or a better control structure, I suppose. They didn't have to go through the Marines. And as I said in my first podcast, when you asked me the difference between Paris and Marines, I said, look at the drill. You know, the way the Marines are smart and calm and whatever, 
and the paras are all bang, bang, bang. Or I mean, the SCS don't do drill, but but they've got a different technique of creating sort of thing. Well, if you look at the the SBS motto, it's by strength and guile, isn't yeah, it? Which yeah. is, I think that's right. That says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think the, the SS are a highly aggressive unit founded on aggressive action. Yeah, and bloody good uh, reconnaissance and good, you know, yeah. I mean, brave as hell. There's nothing wrong with them that, in that respect. They're, they're mad as at us, you know, but they're bloody good good soldiers. South Georgia was won back, and then you started steaming further south to the Falklands. What was happening oh, at that well, point? Yes. Hopefully you didn't go south, we went west because that's where the fuck is. Sorry, are <laughs> you sure not? I'm you're gonna have to that... cut that bit out, mate. You're sure not my geography now. You're not, not a navigator, <laughs> are you? <laughs> just, just west of Scotland. Yeah, you come out, come out of the Fort South George and turn left. <laughs> turn left. So okay, you are steaming westwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we had um, when South Georgia finished, the conqueror surfaced. She'd been on, under the sea all the way from Hars Lane, surfaced. And we took a few SB on board and we regrouped and we got a signal saying, I've got, I've got a date, date time here. It's Sunday 11th of April to Wednesday 28th, South Georgia, Antrim and Plymouth. On completion, had to move quickly to meet up with the carrier group. So 83 SAS people, Colonel Eve and me, were sent to Hermes and 30 SBS and NGFO 2 and 5 to Invincible. Some of the Conqueror SBS as well. One of them, a bloke called Mitch Allen, when he saw me, he said, bloody hell, Brum, I dined you out a few weeks ago. It cost me 10 quid. Give me the, give me the money. What are you doing down here? <laughs> you should be in Germany. Yeah. So uh, that was funny. The next day, Saturday, the 1st of May, uh, on the Hermes, um, we got, I got a call to go up to Flag Ops with Colonel Eve and was given a, a detailed, top-secret overview of um, Stanley. Oh, I can't believe it. It's, I get all this high-grade high stuff where I did. Anyway, here we go. About the Vulcan raid. He said, the, when the Vulcan, this flag up, four-ringer, he said, when the, when the Vulcan goes in, drops his bombs, there'll be 12 Harriers go in and drop the cluster bombs, and then three ships, uh, Glamorgan, Arrow, and Alacrity, will bombard the runway with 50 salvos each. After that, we'll just take it, play it off the cuff. Come up with a plan, and he left, left the room, left the cabin. And I looked at Colonel and I said, what Vulcans? He said, I don't know what they're on about. I mean, he didn't know this Vulcan bomb was going to go in. So we had this map he'd given to us. We had to come up with a plan of how to attack with the three ships. So we, we waited. Um, the Vulcan came in, dropped its bombs, and one of them hit the wrong way, actually. But it was a, it was just a, a psychological. The Argies were going, what the hell's going on here? If they can do this, they can bomb Argentina. I think um, only one... Because uh, these were unguided bombs, I think only one actually hit the runway. That's right, yeah. one, yeah. But if yeah, I, yeah. they'll put at an angle across the runway, if you'd have had, yeah, had right. it down the runway, they'd have all missed. Yeah. But at least one got one hit the runway. But it was. I, I remember think, I heard a thing on the radio the other day. They dropped. They started dropping these bombs two miles yeah, out. Yeah, and, well, they and had to but, turn as well before they even got near the runway. Yeah, and when when he when he dropped them, he was screaming out for fuel because that yeah. if you've seen a, a map of the fuel resupply fuel, phenomenal. Yeah, you know, some aircraft were just flying, flying tankers, and the yeah. last one filled him up, and then he had to turn around and get filled up by somebody else who was behind him, and, on, and so on and so on. So that plan was phenomenal. So we did that anyway. We we lined up Glamorgan up front and Arrow and Alacrity astern, and when the Harriers went away and refueled to cover us, um, we went in off Stanley and started bombarding. The Yages um, didn't like it, so they sent, at that time, they still had Mirages on Stanley Airfield, or, or around the airfield. They sent three Mirages out, 
uh, Glamorgan took the bomb under her stern. It was lifted her up, and she took some water in. Arrow was strafed from stem to stern, and a, a ricochet hit one of these seamen on the upper deck across the chest diagonally. So he, he was just injured and whatever. And Alacrity, which I was on, thousand pound bomb was dropped through from our starboard side, went through between the funnel and the mast and blew up just just off our port side. The ship took a lean to the side and we took water in. We thought, what's going on here? This is not supposed to happen. This wasn't on our plan. So, is that, on a serious note, Brom, was that a genuinely shocking moment for you? That, oh, yeah, you know, that kidding, yeah. This massive bit of steel that you were sat on was vulnerable. Yeah, I'll tell you, there's a bigger one later on about this massive lump of steel. Well, you could fire a rifle at them and they go, the Type 20 arms, a rifle bullet would go through a bloody side of the ship. Mm. You know, they were the, they, could they cut back on them? They mm. cut back on the, 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 that. The Hermes was a sound ship. Invincible was you know, a new one. Anyway, so we got we got this signal from Flag Ops. It said, uh, obviously, daylight never gone fast support isn't working. Go go back in tonight and do it all again. We said, what? So we went back in at night and did the same thing, but our gun broke after three salvos. Which it was- Can I just ask you a quick question on the, the gun drum? So on these, were these, was that, I'll get the terminology right, was that a destroyer? These destroyers were? No, Glamorgan's a destroyer, those two are frigates. So what size of gun was on them? Is it four, four and a half inches? They're, they're all 4.5 inch. 56-pound shell. Again, correct me if I'm right, because I'm talking to a professional naval gunfire person here. Is, if one of those guns is firing one round, is that equivalent to like a battery of 105mm light oh, gun? Well, it's a 56-pound shell. I went back to the Falklands years later, about 10 years ago, up to where William McCracken um, was in trouble. And I looked at the, the holes were in the ground still because it's all peat. And the naval gunfire is a big crater. The 105 is a little dot. You know, it's right, yeah. phenomenal. So if you have six guns firing, they're not firing together, but a, a 4.5 shell coming in, it doesn't make a bloody noise. And they fire, each barrel fires every two and a half seconds. So the, wow. the Glamorgan had twin twin barrels and the Type 21s had a Mark 8 single barrel. So the, you, when you load, the, when you start firing the gun, it's bang, bang. And that's just coming out the barrel, you know, two and a half seconds. And mm. it, is, it is scary. It also fires... Um, illumination and high and low VT. So he's got a, a range. What VT? Sorry, that it, it um, oh, VT. Come on, variable time. Variable time. Sorry, uh, thanks a lot, mate. Variable time. It's sort of a burst in the air. You know, I haven't v- lost it. VT high, <laughs> VT low. So it high, fires high, you know, uh, or low, which is a very good weapon, which I use later on to great effect on some. It's trenches. been probably good in the uh, the Falklands because the gun was so bad. Well, yeah, if you fire. HE into peat, it just sinks into it, type of thing. Yeah. It's like snow. It'll, it'll yeah. absorb most of it. But if you fire VT, it's bloody deadly because you just bits of metal flying everywhere. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So that was that. And then we had, um, on the 29th of May till the 19th of May, we had two weeks riding around doing SAG duties, which is Service Action Group. So you had the Alacrity, Glamorgan and Arrow, and they'd be on the to the west of the two carriers all the time. So the threat was from the west. If ever you see films of the, on the carriers, there's always a destroyer to one side of it, which is the enemy side defending it. So we were, we were out to the side, and as soon as a, a contact was made in the air, we would rush out to meet it. The Type 21s had two engines on board. One was an Olympus Tyne, one's a Concorde. So when they switched the Concorde engine on, you could water ski behind this bloody big frigate. <laughs> Honestly, you could feel the back go in, the back would dig down and you'd go out, and they'd be up to maximum speed and switch to the other engine and just cruise at this maximum speed. They were phenom- they were the greyhounds of the, and they would just a- approach the targets and just fire at them or whatever, you know, to frighten them off type of thing. So we did all that. Um, but one of the biggest job I had on that was a skipper, Commander Craig, who was an amazing c- captain of the Alacrity. He later became an admiral in, in, the, in the first Iraq war. He said, call me in his office one day. Mr. Richards, he said, I've just had a signal from Admiral Woodward. I said, oh, yes, sir. He said, um, he's asked me to go up the sound. You know, the islands are split in the middle, Portland, yeah. and that sound is variable widths. He says, I've been told to go up the sound and see if he's got any mines in it. And I said, oh, are you going to do that, sir? And I kid you not, his exact words were, <laughs> well, we'll drive up there, and if we bump into a mine, we know there's mines. <laughs> if we don't bump into a mine, all we know is we haven't bumped into a mine. There could be mines still. Said, was at this point you were wishing you were back on dry land? Well, I'll tell you what. But he said to me, right, I want you to do a survey of the uh, of the coast either side to see the, any possible enemy positions and come up with a plan that we can engage them before they engage us type of thing. Well, I knew I, I, by then I'd known the Argies were a bit, you know, a bit sort of stay-at-home people. And there's certain places they wouldn't go because they have to be resupplied and whatever. And I don't think they'd be doing it by chopper. The first place we've come across was Fox Bay, which had come up with a plan there of either me being put ashore from the helicopter, firing on there's a, a company in, in there. On the right-hand side, there was no real access to the hills. You could you could lift a gun up, but you'd have to resupply it regularly in the arches. Couldn't get good TV and good pizza. I don't know. So it would be difficult. <laughs> and then the next one was Port Howard, which was on the left, which was a, a, another company position. But it was hidden behind a big hill. And on the right was San Carlos. So I come up with a plan of what I thought was best. And we had a bloke on the bridge, and I'd given them these grid references of all the possible known targets. And all the bloke would do was, I was on a radio set in the ops room, and he'd just call out the, the target, which he, he thought was something there. I'd look at the radar, and we'd engage it. Even if you fire around, just fire around willy-nilly. People put their heads down, don't they? Yeah. You haven't got to line him up in the sniper sights. Just go, boom, from blow to bloody hell, and they all dive. Could yeah. you use the, the ship's radar to adjust, or was it not sensitive enough? Well, no, you could do, yeah, which actually we did, because a little while later, as we were going up, we went full silent. 
running. The skipper, skipper got us all in his day cab and he said, right, this is my plan. We're going to go up the sound, full silent running. Everybody will be above the waterline except the engine crews. Everybody with full action stations, all hatches closed, no noise, no um, tannoys. Uh, the heads will be closed. I said, I think the heads should be open because they probably <laughs> want to be used. He said, no. Head, and there's ropes down the sides of the ship for towing. Everything was all planned. He then said, right, first lieutenant, you will be in the after wheelhouse with the master at arms. He went through the, his senior men. And he, he then came to me and he said, Mr. Richards, you're the last man on my list. Um, if everybody else is dead, you will get my ship back. Do not break, <laughs> do not break my ship. Do not lose it. Oh, the hell's bells. Are you serious? Any questions? And we all went, no. Well, anyway, we sailed off, turned right, went up the sound, and um, we had our radar. Our chopper was up as well because you, you can't, as you well know, you can't distinguish where a chopper is at night. The noise, the echoes, you look and you think it's over there, so it's over there, especially with hills around. It is very hard to locate a chopper. And then we noticed on radar a contact ahead of us about five miles. The skipper said, right, match, match it course and speed. They might think it's an echo. So we matched this course and speed of this um, thing for about 15 minutes. He then said, right, two illumination salvos in front of it. We fired two illumination salvos and it didn't turn around. So we thought, what's he, what's he playing at? Normally, somebody would have turned around. But this thing was steaming across towards Port Howard. He then said, right, rifle fire, five salvos. So we fired five salvos rifle fire, which is normal normal speed, two and a half seconds. And I, I suggested, do uh, VT, VT high. He said, right, VT high. We fired VT high. Massive explosion. The bridge said there was a big explosion. They've seen in their lives. We got up to where the ship was, and there's not a thing, not nothing left in the water, just green phosphorescence. We, we thought, oh, bloody, I wonder what that was. So we went up to past Port Howard, fired some illumination rounds at Port Howard to try and draw them out. But they didn't do anything because they were probably hiding low. We got up to the end and eight um, arrow was waiting for us. But that was tense because our radar man said, called up, um, unknown contact, you know, bearing height, and there was no answer. We thought, oh, bloody hell, it's one of them. The next thing was, this is Arrow, don't worry, we've got, we got you, we've got you type of thing. And we've raced out of there like mad. But later on, we found out it was a, a ship which had 300,000 litres of aviation fuel in 50-gallon drums strapped to its upper deck. Well, yeah. And we just, whoosh, it just disappeared. And uh, wow. anyway, that was that, that was a nice, um, nice <coughs> awakener. Did you have any uh, in naval gunfire parties ashore at this time, or had they not deployed ashore? They hadn't, they hadn't come down yet. Well, William McCracken was, uh, no, Captain Brown. No, there was just us roaming down the sea. Mm-hmm. I was just obeying orders, sir, just obeying orders. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on the next next big thing we had was 17th of May we insert William McCracken and his team into Rickery Point with an SBS team and they're going to go ashore for five days at least to cover the landings Captain McCracken we're going to look overlook Goose Green which we knew there was an airfield there and all that and the SBS were going to do the beach wreckies on San Carlos they, they go I don't know if you know they go they dive around the beach to see if there's any obstructions that was it. So my, my, my big, next big job was to go to the briefing with the SBS guy, who I knew very well, and William McCracken, and the ship's captain. That was the only people there. And the ship's captain, as I said, this bloke, he was Commander Craig, was an amazing guy. We give him the plan, and he sat and listened to it. And we said, you know, the SBS Gemini will be here, the NGS Gemini will be to the stern, 
at an angle of 40, 40 degrees and following it in. The SPS of Germany will then go ashore. If they set foot ashore, they're on their own. If they're attacked mm-hmm. before that, we've got to get them out. Mm-hmm. Once they set foot on the shore, they've claimed it. <clears throat> then then it will, Germany will come back, William McCracken's team will go in. If they get on the, on the shore and they're safe, great. If they get attacked, we will engage and help them at their at order. And so the skipper said, right, what happens if, I said, sir, sir, we can't tell you anymore. And he said, what do you mean? I said, we're not allowed to tell you the recovery plan for the next five days. He said, but, but why not? I said, because you've got 126 blokes to look after and a ship. If you all know and you all get captured or something, you know, you, so he understood. Mm. The SBS guy said to him, sir, we're not joking. This is well, we, the way we operate. So we did that insertion. But my next big problem was I had to know where William McCracken was for the initial landings a few days later, because they're going to be on the right flank of the brigade landings. If it's Paris, they're just going to shoot anything that moves. Now, what we had planned was that the McCracken's team had anti-flash gear, you know, which is the white... The white hoods. White gloves, white gloves. Yeah, yeah. So they had anti-flash gear, and they would put that on <coughs> when they... Excuse me, when they exposed themselves. So, the, so the, you know, the, the, I said to the man who was on the right flank, which is Captain Arnold, you must impress upon the right flanking platoon. If you see blokes like that, do not kill them. They're ours. But they're going to shoot anything, the paras. Because they were right and left flanking, three para left, two para right. And the brigade coming the brigade in the middle. I think most soldiers in a, in a, 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 expected an opposed landing probably would anyway, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, it was luckily it was unopposed, so that was all <laughs> up, up the year. So 20th of May to the 31st of May, the brigade's landings took place. Five battalions, in essence, I'm calling Marines battalions now, the forty-four, two, four, five, three and two para landed, um, but we got attacked a lot. I mean, Picaras, you name it, everything in the world was attacking us, and they were not going for the bloody ships at all. They were just—I oh, don't know what they were doing. Their plan was wrong. They were just coming into to uh, San Carlos, blasting away anything. But we were all in a mess in San Carlos, on the Plymouth. We were just driving around. The gun was firing at anything, and it was just a. You know, it's just unbelievable. Nobody's in control. You're all just defending your own corner. Just like down Sucker Hill Street on a bloody Saturday night, you know, <laughs> punch anything that moves. So uh, that was it. So it wasn't very good. Was that a sense of um, uncoordination? Well, it wasn't uh, expected. It wasn't expected, you see. That, that Nobody expected that, that amount of uh, counterattack because we were just landing. But they could, have, they could have sunk so many ships if they'd have a planned, planned attack. Would have lost. Would have lost the landings. Uh, the the other thing that, that we've we discussed in previous podcasts is they were coming in that low that their oh. bombs were fused at the oh, wrong yeah. height. Yeah, and there's quite a few bombs lodged on ships that didn't go off. I'll come on to that in a minute. I'll tell us an exciting story think, in a minute. I think it's worth remembering though. It, it was as much a surprise for us. It was a massive surprise for them as well. Yeah, because they'd never fought a, a battle or a war no. in that way. So they were learning in the same way. I think. I don't. I don't you, think you were. I don't think anybody had understood a Pucara. I mean, they are mm. deadly. You know, the, the slow propeller flying. driven as well. Yeah, slow flying and the machine yeah. guns on them, and they are they are deadly, more deadly than a bloody fast jet. Unbelievably deadly, and they just take anything out. So uh, the landing took place, and I always remember Plymouth was in there. I had to go. I was on Plymouth. We went into the landing first um, to defend the beach, and then the landing craft came alongside us. 
and then they went in to, to land and they were quite anxious because Captain Arnold was with his team and, and we're not, not supposed to talk on the radio, but you do sometimes, right? But I was on the GDP, gun direction platform, and I wanted to test the intercom. I pressed my presser switch and this bloody big green light lit up. <laughs> this was like <laughs> two in the morning. And I thought every RG in the world can see this. So this Matlow got a bit of black maskers in and put it over. He said, that's right, mate. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's sorted. They landed and then they came back and hugged the side of our ship. And then the next lot went in. So we landed, I say landed five battalions, which is quite a, a feat really. And, and I was on Yarmouth two nights. Uh, uh, we did the Goose Green support for the uh, Paras. Fox Bay with um, Jim McManus, uh, which was a, a bit of a mess almost. Plymouth was d- defending and uh, we lost comms with them. We were firing. I got all the targets from Captain McManus and I knew his exfiltration plan for the next five days. And uh, I had an SBS guy with me because SBS were the driver in the boat and there was two guys from the battery, Captain McManus and Steve Hoyle and the Matlow. Um, and then we had the SBS team. But the propeller on the Gemini broke. The, sh- the sheer pin snapped, which always used to happen when we were in the jungle as well. So we had a problem there. We lost comms. So the skipper said to me, what, what can we do? What can we do? I said, look, sir, I know what they're doing. They are in charge. They will make the next move. He said, well, why haven't they called us? I said, look, they're in charge. They're waiting for us. You know, went to contact us and then they'll carry on. And he, he kept on to me and I took him to one side. And so said, were they adrift at this point in a Gemini in the open yeah, sea? Yeah, they were, they were just, they just lost comms and the propeller wouldn't work. They put up a false mast using a couple of the paddles and a bit of um, a, a screen so we could, we could track them on radar. I took the skipper to one side and I said, look, sir, this is what's probably happened. They're, the enemy's too close. They can't speak. They, they've all been captured and they've ditched the radios before they were captured, threw them in the sea. Uh, I said something else. I forget what the other thing was. And that's the last thing I said was, and our last salvo has killed them all. And he looks at me. He said, what? I said, that's, you've got to look at the facts. Those are the facts. But if they're alive, they're trying to get hold of us now. So I went up on the upper deck with um, the SB guy and he was talking on his VHF because the SB boatmen had VHF. And uh, suddenly we heard a crackling voice come across the radio. They'd swapped, luckily, because of Klansmen, you swap handsets and everything. And they mm-hmm. swapped the handsets, put them onto the 320, and we got got very bad comms. And, and the human manager said to me, carry on firing. I knew that all the targets he wanted to fire. I'll just put 10 salvos on each target. And just to cover him, and he was drifting to the east uh, or east of the bay. The skip, somebody said to the skipper, it's time to leave. We've got to go back to San Carlos. Daylight's coming. And his exact words were, I'm not leaving. They're part of my crew, which was, was brilliant. You know, really emotional. So we, we put the ship's boat over the side, and we found them on radar. We tracked, picked them up and got them back, and they raced back to San Carlos all, all well. Captain McManus couldn't light a cigar. His hands were shaking so much. <laughs> the next horrible thing happened was you had to bury two guys at sea from Argonaut when we did the main first landings. Two young guys were in the Seacat missile loading compartment, which was below a certain level, which was all hatched down. And next to them was a diesel fuel tank. So the bomb hit the Argonaut flooded the compartment, and these two guys drowned in diesel. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, a naval burial is unbelievable. You have a, a watchman over them, over the bodies who were wrapped up in Hessian, blokes in full full best dress, reverse arms, guarding them until the morning or till whenever. So we slipped out of San Carlos to do a RAS, a resupplied sea of fuel, and buried these two poor buggers in the sea. It's the horriblest thing I've seen in my life. These bodies on this board just go into this deep 
dark, cold, black water, you know. Mm. And you thought, that's the end of them poor buggers. There's a memorial stone down in Paul here to one of them. Um, one was 21 and one was ni- uh, 19, I think. So Sunday the 30th to the 14th of June, we were going to insert SBS and NGFL1 into um, East Coast from Avenger. We are going to take six lifts by Lynx. So we took them all on board. We took the NGF, NGS team plus all the SBS on board. And we're going to load them on these links and land them ashore in, in Salvador. We were detached from the um, carrier group. And about 35 minutes uh, after we'd been detached, I was in the ops room, stood next to the case computer-aided assistance service operator. When the EW operator behind the screen, behind the curtain, shouts out loud, handbrake, handbrake. That meant that was an Etendard radar, which had Exocet, and he picked mm. it up. They'd just come up, do two sweeps, and then go down again. And they'd gone up, done two sweeps, and gone down. The kid, and he was a young kid, on um, the, the uh, radar, immediately stood up and fired six chaff. He should have got permission off the skipper, basically. But within seconds, he went to full action stations. We're always ruling, running the, uh, cruising action stations, full action stations. He, he fires a chaff, and then suddenly I was watching the screen. I can picture it now, watching the screen, and I saw these blips on the screen, just like these bloody computer games. The case operator picks up four more contacts, extreme range. We assessed there were two super darts and two mirage. Then the EW operator calls out, missile launch, and we fire more. They'd launched two exosets. The EW operator called Missile Launch and we fire more chap. As I'm watching this like a movie on the radar screen, we now have four clear contacts which would be marked and two more which suddenly accelerate towards us. They are the missiles. We see two contacts, which must be super etendard, break away and go back to the west. We lock our fire control gun system onto it. We try and turn our backs to it, but you can't fire the gun with your back to the target. So we're firing over our shoulder almost. And the computer as a bloody data crash. So quickly, we, we re, re, resort it, and the four, four or five begins to engage, one salvo every two seconds. After about four seconds, four salvos, it stops again. You put it into manual, and it continues. You put up more chaff, and one of the exoset explodes either because we hit it with our gun, or more likely the pressure wave caused by it, it causes it to detonate. The other one comes on towards us still. Espear on the upper deck with her armor lights trying to fire at this bloody orange <laughs> missile coming in. Travel at the speed of sound, though. Unbelievable. Uh, the case officer suddenly stands up. This is what I can never get out of my brain still. And points to the other side of the ops room in a clear, calm voice says, Missile will hit us there in 15 seconds. Trying to move to the side behind the bloke. <laughs> I don't know. What's going on here? The spot he points to is an aluminium bunkhead 25 feet away from me. And I'm stood. What can I do? I'm amazed at just how calm everybody in the ops room is. I, I decided to tell Brigade HQ, just, so I'll just do something. I'll just say, contact, contact. The missile is seduced by our chaff and passes harmlessly, but very close. So close, I said, that the SBS are trying to shoot it down. <laughs> the two escort aircraft come in at us, flying very low, two uh, sky, Skyhawks. Uh, one drops his bomb, but solo it blows himself up, which we claim oh, yeah. is an own goal. And the other one continues on its way. 
we then just continue with our mission of landing all the SBS ashore. You're not selling a career in the Navy here, bro. No, then, oh, I am. Yeah. I am. <laughs> and that was, that was like close, you know, I mean, Jesus. Anyway, later on, we were asked to in, uh, assist NGFO3 on the night of the 3rd to engage a radar station on the north of the island. And we engaged that and it, we shot it up and um, the two operators ran down to a little household and, gave themselves up to an old man and woman there. The NGO parties are going out, Brom. I take it they were based on ship, and they'd go out and do a, do a task for three or four days, then come back. Is that generally how it worked? Yeah, you just you just tasked. I was I was getting helicopters land, and they would go, what's, I've come to pick up Mr. Richards. And I'd go, I haven't got a task yet. And when I got to the next ship, I said, what's my task? He said, well, we don't know, but if you're on our ship, you're going to get tasked. Because <laughs> I, was, I was the really... Guy was doing every bloody thing. So you're basically getting taxied back and forth to each ship. Yeah, if I had AMR, would be I'd firing be, support with ground troops. If I had AMRs, I'd be bloody laughing, I tell you. <laughs> On the 8th of June, we were around the southeast of the island doing supporting William McCracken and two para, and you're taking heavy losses. Um, the Yarmouth is a Type 12 Rossi-class anti-submarine frigate, so she's got a very shallow draft, two bloody good guns. I said to the skipper, sir, they're, they're in trouble, we need to help them. And we looked at the radar, he said, that means going into the Exocet arc. I said, I know, but in my opinion, I, I don't know how he took it, I said, in my opinion, they've got no target acquisition radar. If they fire something, they're just firing it blindly because they've got nothing linked up. If they had a, a radar which linked mm. to the missile, we'd be in trouble. But they haven't got it, otherwise they'd have used it before. He said, okay, we'll go around. I said, if you come round the coast, round the next inlet, very, very slowly, you can put your bows on the kelp which is, I mean, kelp is so thick. It's yeah. like, bloody, it, and you could put on there, you've got a stable gun platform. And you can, so we did that, went round, and we were dropping salvos 50 yards away from the enemy. That's when um, William McCracken went berserk and fired a 66 at a machine gun post and whatever. Stan Ardy, who I sent on a medics course, he was a matador, sent on a medics course before all this. He was helping with the blokes that were getting injured. He lost a lot of blokes. Just one... was, this, was this the, the Longdon battle, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. This one para was screaming out. He, he's going, I've lost my leg, I've lost my leg. And Stan Hardy, he's a Londoner, like, he said, no, you haven't made it over there, look. And this, <laughs> this bloke just burst out laughing and just eased the problem. And Jacko, the other guy, was going around picking up bloke's boots, said they're better than his. So it was, it was a, a very, very, very difficult time. Just hearing about, about the naval gunfire in that battle, I mean, I've read James O'Connell's book, about uh, Longdon. It's a really good account, three days yeah. in June, and he mentions a, a few things about naval gunfire part, Mc, Captain McCracken's team there. And because Mc, Captain McCracken got an MC yeah, that yeah, night, yeah. and he was saying as well, he couldn't identify him, but he said that uh, when he was injured and he was waiting down at the regimental aid post, there's a, a guy from 148 came back and forward three or four times. He said he's a massive bloke with uh, injured yeah. paras over his shoulder. That's Jacko. You know, was that Jacko, Jacko, was it? Jacko, yeah. yeah, he said he's a massive bloke, but uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, 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 the comradeship was just unbelievable, you know. The, the, even in the, in the height of it all, it was just just phenomenal. So I, mean, we, I mean, it's pretty pretty clear as well, I think. Naval gunfire was decisive in a lot of these battles, wasn't it? The Navy don't get credit for what they did. If you, I don't know what your back, both backgrounds are, have you ever in field guns? I did field guns. Yeah, I, I, I was the air defence to machine before I went 473. So he wasn't even artillery. <laughs> oh, <laughs> mate. I mean, if you if you think... Can you move a six-gun battery and its ammunition and all its personnel and et cetera? How long would it take? How many helicopters would it take to oh. move them five miles? And there was a shortage of helicopters down yeah. there. At- yeah. so yeah. A ship a ship can just drive around, 
bombard and go away. Well, Although it's susceptible. And, and a ship was also, it's almost like a, a regiment's worth of guns with its firepower. Yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah. A, a, a battery of six guns, yeah, you know, it, as, and as powerful a, as it is, it's, it's just not the same as a, a naval and I've platform. Seen, I've seen plenty of pictures of the 2-9 Commandos guns firing in action down there. I mean, they must have struggled for a stable gun platform, didn't they? Oh, yeah, and, and, sinking and, into that peat all the time. Peat yeah. all the time, yeah. yeah. It, was, yeah. It, was, it wasn't good, yeah. I mean, the peat is unforgiving. You know, I don't know if the Scots live up there. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I moved south, mate. <laughs> <laughs> the right of fire from a live gun is nothing compared to a, a ship's gun. Yeah. Anyway, the um, it all started coming to an end on Monday the 15th, uh, sorry, the 14th of June, when four ships were up on the north uh, gun line outside Stanley. And if ever you've watched the New Year celebrations in London, imagine that going on for four hours. You know, tracer guns, ships firing, you name it. It was just unbelievable that they just caved in. So we went away, and on the 15th, four ships had to come back in. They technically surrendered. The Argentine Air Force had said, we're not giving in like, as they, they would do with mouth and trousers, and we're going to be the last standing. So we had four ships up there. We were at full action stations all night, just waiting for something to happen. Nothing happened, luckily. So we then did, detached. I went, I was on Yarmouth, and we detached to the east where the carrier group was, 180-odd miles away. And I was on my way there, and I suddenly got a, a signal off the BC saying, come to San Carlos. I said, I'm on the way to the D7 Jewel. Uh, where I'd been tasked to go, and supposedly there were a hundred um, Argies on Southern Chul, and I was tasked to go down there with Yarmouth and, and take Southern Chul back. We went down there, I landed ashore with the Marine to protect me. There was only 10 Argies on there, actually, and we didn't fire, a re- we were just about to fire when they surrendered. The helicopters were coming in with them, company, uh, recce troops, sorry, and uh, I think the thwack thwack of the blades sounded like gunfire. And they must have gone, oh, no, 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 they're shooting real bullets. And they just all gave in quickly. Because it does sound like when a, when an helicopter's coming into land, it does change its tune, doesn't it? Yeah, the rotor pitch the road changes, doesn't it? That was it. When I when I was landed, we flew in. I was hanging out the bloody boss with no door on it. My face was frozen, minus 40-odd wind chill and all that, about 40 or something. I landed with this Marine, and uh, we we got got ashore. And I got my, all my radios working, my weapon out and all that. Look behind me, there's this massive great tower of ice behind me. I thought, well, God, when I open up with this ship, it's going to all come down on me. But luckily they didn't, so that was that was all it was. Three minutes before uh, I was about to open up, they all gave in. The helicopter then picked me up, did like a peacetime landing, and the crewman made sure I was strapped in properly. I said, oh, mate, wait, a minute ago you threw me out the bloody door, and now, there you are strapping me and giving me a tea and biscuits and <laughs> offering me a bloody book to read. So in total... We, the Navy fired 7,916 rounds of 4.5, 56-pound shells during the war from 14 allocated ships. We haven't got 14 ships in the Navy now. 14 <laughs> allocated gunships. There's other ships, but some did more missions than others. I was the NGLO for 17 of those missions and from seven different ships, and I was responsible for 2,632 rounds fired. Those from the 6th to the 14th of June were in direct support of ground troops' advances. So that was the most rewarding part of it. You were supporting yeah. guys, and you knew what they were going through yeah. on the ground. A lot of the other stuff was harassing or interdiction fire, letting the Argies know we were we were there type of thing. We were firing before that, firing up into the hills off Stanley 
maximum range 22 kilometers just firing rounds in up in the hills so they'd be going bloody hell we're not safe up here even i have some idea of the time i went with, with the ship relative safety to the task group to the east 116 118 miles from stanley 116 miles from stanley of how the raf felt during world war ii moved into enemy territory and then come back to safety every night yeah, that's a good point. I, 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 got a, I got a funny when, when I got tasked, oh God, going back in tonight. Will it be tonight? Mm. Will, it, will it be tonight that this something happens? You, you go in. If you're in the area, you're in the area. You can get your head down, but constantly going back and forth, yeah. back and forth. Because you're adjusting to two modes, aren't you? If you're constantly deployed psychologically, you're deployed. You know yeah. you're in danger, and you adjust to that. But as you say, if you're constantly coming in and out, you're getting that adrenaline rush each yeah. time, aren't you? Well, I built up a routine of talking to the. Ops room petty officer or chief petty officer who was in charge of the ops room. And I'd say, look, mate, when the skipper goes to get his head down, tell me, and I get my head down. I want to, I want to be awake. I want to be awake when he's awake and asleep when he's asleep. And it worked well because they they come and say, man, brum, he's got his head down for half two hours or something, you know. And I'd do the same because that's the only way you can work it, really. There's never been a book about the Navy campaign of the Falklands, no. has there? No, because there's no. Everybody's looking for glory, I suppose, you know. But it was no, but, totally, totally yeah. naval. If it wasn't for the Navy, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. We'd, we'd still be bogged down because yeah. we were running out of ammo. Well, the Navy was running out of ammo as well. But the bridge down there was just... What do you think of it? When Fire Brigade came, Quartermaster of 3 Commander Brigade had three battalions, really, 44, 2, and 4, 5. Then he had stuck on him 2 and 3 para, yeah. which was mm-hmm. harder. Then Fire Brigade, you know, had two Scot, uh, Scots Guards, Welsh Guards, and Gurkhas. Yeah. So that one quartermaster was operating. And all the two, support arms as well. Yeah, yeah. For two them. brigades, two brigades. Yeah. Really oper- and he had no extra equipment. The ship Atlantic Cavera gone down. So that guy deserves all the credit of trying to keep it all together. So the bridge we're talking about, there was to the east, there was literally, I'm told, I never, I never got involved in it, I was told there was like uh, uh, on, on the charts, ships just going up and down. Repair ships, because ships are getting hit and getting repaired. Yeah. Resupplied oil, resupply food, resupply ammo. They're constantly resupplying. And a resupply at sea is all jacked across, you know, by ropes and things. Yeah. And so that it, it's a day's job resupplying your ship. And the ships are running at 70% ammo, although I went on some ships, and there's bloody 4.5 rounds all down the passageways. <laughs> they were overloaded with ammo. They weren't going to run out. Logistics were phenomenal, mm. and I've heard I've heard a few Americans say, even with their sophisticated stuff, they would never go out to mount a, an operation like that at sea. There's no mm. land between Ascension and the Falklands. No. It's about eight thousand miles or something, isn't yes. it? I think well, eight, eight, four thousand to Ascension, which yeah. is land, and then the next land is Ascension when you come back. But yeah. There's no there's no land in between really until obviously mm. the war was over. But it, was it, that? that was phenomenal. So, Brum, at the end of the, the, the campaign then, how did you recover back to the UK? When you got back to the UK, how were the major lessons learned from this campaign forced 148? Well, when Southern Chill surrendered, Yarmouth made best speed with the 10 prisoners to South Georgia, where we deposited them and then on to Stanley. Princess Diana had a baby, so we spliced the main brace, which was good. William was born. <laughs> um, we entered Stanley just as the Canberra was about to sail home with the whole of three camera brigade on board. They'd never been together since probably the war, you know. They'd just all served in different areas. We managed to call her up on speech secure, and I always remember the skipper picking up the red handset and said, SS Canberra, this is warship Yarmouth. 
we have one patch for you from 148 Battery. Can you take him, please? And they said, better hurry, we're just casting off. So I, they threw me into a ship's boat, <laughs> took me across to the Canberra, which was still on the move, threw a rope that he ladder down, and I crumbled, scrambled up it. Luckily, Colonel Eve was on the bridge, and he'd, he'd had a good nose around and said, yeah, bring him on here. <laughs> so the BC and Captain Arnold were on Fearless. Uh, Captain Arnold became the adjutant to 229 then, and Sergeant Aris Hughes on an RFA looking after some gunweed purloined. I realised it was my birthday. <laughs> So I went up the up the mess and had a, a good effort to make it a good birthday. And but nobody nobody was shouting, screaming. Everybody was sitting, talking quietly. Nobody was running around like a mad football crowd saying we've just won and all that. It was amazing. Also, I cannot recall, recall talking about the experience with others or shouting about it. But they'd just been through after even after a few wets. The relaxed atmosphere on the cruise was great. Nobody told you what to do. We just we did PT every morning run around the Canberra deck, which is quite a way around, bumping into people going the other way, typical booties going the wrong way. Um, <laughs> and then when we returned to England, it was just quiet. And I went out shopping with my wife after a couple of days. I bumped into a couple of the guys from the battery. And literally, we just said hi, nodded to each other and carried on shopping. Nobody, I suppose the, the, the two weeks journey up on yeah. the Canberra was, was relaxing. The Paris flew back and mm. had some trouble at stations and all this sort of stuff. You know, I think we had time to recover. Yeah, yeah get out of your system. Decompression, wasn't it? Well, one one funny thing was the um the Canberra had a the, the radio room arranged. This is before mobiles and satellites were arranged to people could make a telephone call home. So you, you went up to the radio room, gave your telephone number, and they would ring your house, like, and then they would tell you what what tell your wife or whatever what day they would ring again. Yeah, and to be by the phone, just radio. You got three minutes. On, on the phone with your wife type of thing. So we're all, all the blokes are lined up outside. And I, I thought, well, I won't bother the first time because it's going to be crowded. The second time I did it, and it was a bit quieter, we all lined up and this bloke called me in and I went into the phone, picked up, I said to my wife, hello, love, are you? And she couldn't believe it. They were phoning, who on our way back type of thing. And uh, I had me talk. And when I came out, I said to this bootneck sergeant who was sat there, I said, what's your wife's name, mate? He, she said, oh, so-and-so. I said, oh, I've mixed it all up. I just spoke to her for three minutes. See ya. <laughs> he, went, <laughs> he went berserk. And that was the way it was anyway. What we so, learned, this is in my opinion, was that our training and methods were just about right, but there's always room for improvement. Mm -hmm. Well-known saying, no plan survives initial contact is apt. The selection process we all went through was the best available and the flexibility of our soldiers just right. My policy was, if you don't pass any phase, you don't stay. You don't hang on to people. You know, sorry, didn't make it. Try again in a year or something. But you're not. You're not going to hang around with not being qualified. It takes time to become a proficient, and that's the only fault I can see. That by that I mean, when an officer joins the battery, it should not be simply good for his future career, but to learn and to be a team member. Two years is not enough to learn the job properly. In the main, we had a good bunch. Because and we talked about this on your previous podcast that one freight's future was in the balance. Oh yeah, three Falklands. It was in the down the down side balance. So mm. post Falklands, with the lessons learned, not just by one freight, but obviously by Free Commando Brigade, and as we talked about the importance of naval gunfire, especially in that campaign, how did that help change the uh, the future, future really. of one freight? Well, it gave them more kudos, and they're doing. A lot like at the dinner last on on the, on the Monday, the guys are doing a lot more 
than we did, but then there's the opportunity to do it. We didn't. What we did was what we could only what we could do. They're doing a lot more because they're doing working with the U.S. Marines yeah. mm-hmm. a lot, and they're doing a, a lot of square sh- jumping shoots and all this sort of stuff. I uh, think a lot of that is a product of um, the, the wars over the last twenty years, Brummie, as well. I, th- I think the Falklands War came along, and it hadn't been a proper punch up for the British Army yeah, for for yeah. decades. Afghanistan and Iraq came along in the early two thousands, and one thing we've and we've talked about this in the podcast a few times is that normally out of area operations were done by the Marines and the commandos. The, what Afghanistan did was line infantry were given yeah. more opportunities and yeah. improved themselves. And what's that that's done for likes of one four eight and four seven three, you know, they're now filling roles that maybe thirty, forty years ago would have been done by yes. Airford. Yeah, that's... SF only, yeah. yeah. Well I mean it produced um, Afghan produced JTACs, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, guys and who F- weren't and the fire support team concept. Yeah, yeah. and it, it got the whole thing going and that's more emphasis done on support. Mm. If you can give the right support, you can help the guys out on the foot. It irks me somewhat that there are some individuals who live off the success of what 148 Battery did there, suggesting they were involved, but that's the way it is all the time. Well, success has a billion fathers, and uh, yeah. Yeah. failure is an orphan, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 21st of May, the enemy surrendered on 14th of June. That's when the blokes landed, the main soldiers landed 21st of May, and it ended on the 14th of June. Do the maths, it's only three weeks. Yeah, I know. And some of us not were on our on our chin straps after really two months, just about. So I'm, all I'm saying is we had a job to do, and we did it well. Whereas others just scratched the surface, and seemed to claim they were instrumental in the success. Every serviceman was a piece in the puzzle, and without all pieces being in place in the correct position, the picture would not fit. In my opinion, the chain of command was a bit of a shambles at times. That was the only thing we hadn't learned. We got too many mixed cap badges, and there was not enough structure in it. Although they had the you had the Ace Mobile Force structure, and with different units joining in, but it was just a. Well, if I remember correctly, the overall command of the operation was back at Northwood. Yes, you then had a command in charge of the of the landing operation. There was two brigadiers who are sort of fighting out as well. I think. Well, one one brigadier who was doing his job, and the other one who messed up. Yeah. Uh, and that documentary you're on about the other week there, that, that uh, the, the, the five lives, brigade, yeah, yeah, five brigade brigadier got. I was really surprised how much he got slated. Tony Wilson, but, yeah, well, he did, he did, he didn't, he did stuff without any authority or permission. He yeah. thought he was his own man. It was a hell of a big learning curve, but it's costly to yeah. some people. Yeah, that's, that's know, a problem. Is, I mean, the Welsh guys should never have been in that position they were in. But there's a uh, see there's a whole argument there about you know you had an, an ace mobile Arctic trained battalion that didn't go yeah yeah and you know they sent the the Welsh guards who had just come off ceremonial you know it's, it's again it goes back to the politics you mentioned doesn't it and and um, the, the sort of oh why aren't my aren't my boys there type of thing yeah you know it's it's a, it's a hostile place the Falklands I mean it's nearly always windy mm. if you have a sunny day the day lasts about two hours. It's breaking on steroids, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I say it's just it's just a, a a good training place. But I, I've always said, if you can, we we're all Arctic trained. If you can soldier in Norway, you can soldier anywhere. Yeah, I think, and, and that's and I, and I think that's why the commander brigade was the the backbone for that whole operation. Yeah, yeah. because you were the the most readiness organisation for that environment. Right, Brom, just. Thanks for coming on, mate. That was really interesting. Yeah, it really was. Uh, I think you had a when you listened to your first podcast in this one. What an amazing career you've had, and to have that sort of bookend 
what you did. I mean, absolutely fantastic. So I'll hand over to Kev now to wrap up. Obviously, for this episode, there's no Desert Island Ditch today, as Brum has previously been on. So that's it for another episode. So thank you, Brum, for coming on the podcast. And to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. And as always, postcards are always warmly welcome. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you downloaded us from iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review or anywhere where you get your podcasts from. Especially Spotify now, because we get 45% of our downloads from Spotify. I am a geek when it comes to these statistics. I Sorry, know, I don't even know what Spotify is. <laughs> um, it's a Dalmatian dog, isn't it? I have no idea. <laughs> you two are technical fellas. I'm holding my head in shame I, here. Online banking is about as far as I go. <laughs> um, thanks again to Nick Beale for his continued support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical assistance through his company, ISAR. See you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.